the Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities. From getting fired for being pregnant, which is insane, to getting hired at a quote-unquote evil corporation, we discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave the professional world alone. Did I tell you about the for-profit school that I worked at? I don't think so. In 2012, I accepted a job that I was very suspicious of. The reason why I was suspicious of the job was that it was for the role of admissions advisor at a for-profit university in Akron, Ohio. Phoenix University. Something like that. I'm taking a job to enroll students, saddling them with student debt in order to pay off my own debt. I guess on previous shows, you just constantly would talk about student debt and its ills and Looks like you were responsible for peddling. (laughs) Let's let him finish his story. Okay. All right. All right. Let's get into it. Actually, the story I'm telling you right now, this very abbreviated version, is just a tiny piece of a monologue that I took on the road for three years nationally across the country, performed in front of thousands of people as a form of redemption of what I'm about to tell you now. Okay? So, but I needed to let you know that I took this job not because I was like, yeah, I want to put people into debt. It was the reality that I had 50K of my own debt. And honestly, after you're searching for a job for six months and someone's like, here's a job, you're like, yeah, I'll take it. And as soon as I started, I knew something was off. We were trained like salespeople as opposed to education advocates. We were encouraged to use what I felt were unethical tactics to recruit students primarily from economically vulnerable populations. I asked myself, should I put my head down in the sand and continue to be part of the problem so at least that I could pay off my own student debt, or do I go rogue? You went rogue. (laughs) I went freaking rogue. (laughs) How long were you there, though? I was there for about a year. I realized that we were just vetting to get their federal funding or their student loans. And half of our degrees weren't even accredited. So what do you do? I went rogue. Jerry Maguire style? Yeah, Jerry Maguire style, Matt. I start telling all my prospective students the truth during our interviews. (laughs) You tell them, shut the phone? Like, hey, you don't want to come to this university. I'm on the phone. I'm telling them the whole story about this place. And I'm telling them, listen, you got to tell your friends. Don't go to the school. Get out of here. That's when I decide to burst into a monologue like the one I'm telling you right now about this place being an evil corporation. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I believe it. Before I could finish my story, before I could finish the monologue, security is notified. I was escorted out of the building as I continued my monologue down the hallway. Next thing I know, I'm sitting in the parking lot in my broken down Oldsmobile with no job, an uncertain future, and still myself with a ton of student debt, but at least I didn't work for an evil corporation anymore. Do you still have the student debt? I have to ask. I have 15,000 left of that debt. That's not much. Yeah. I paid a lot of it off, but I still, even to this day, I just turned 40. I have $15,000 left of that student. And it's for a four-year degree, a communications degree. And by the way, that was the premise of the story that gave life to a monologue that took me around the country for three years. And I told that story. Ironically, I premiered the monologue back in New York. Oh, that's great. And then took it on the road for three years. So, and was adopted by a lot of advocacy groups and universities and different organizations who said, like, let's use this story to at least raise the consciousness about student debt and its impact. I'm sure Phoenix University absolutely loves you. They must oh, 
Dude. But I was asking myself the same question and I was like, should I work for this corporation or should I stay the course and really just take care of myself and my career? First off, your story reminds me of so many of, in the 80s and 90s, it was The Bonfire of Vanities. I don't know if you guys read that by Tom Wolfe. And then you had Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. Both of them involved the finance industry and the excesses and greed mm. of Wall Street. And you had these whistleblowers of sorts in the form of writers writing books, tell all tales, talking about that. So your experience kind of remind me of those books. And at that time, it was finance that was the poster child for a lot of the, the greed and corporation, the moniker evil. That's what came to mind immediately with the story that you shared. Did you both see there were articles this week about loud quitting? What is this? An offshoot of quiet quitting. So quiet quitting is when it's like work-life balance. I'm taking a step back. I'm setting boundaries. Loud quitting is, I mean, Aaron, I feel like it's the definition of what you did. I was on the cutting edge. You're actively negative. You're calling out what you see is wrong. And I guess loud quitters are more likely to leave a job, even if it means a pay cut. They're just, they're mad. I love that. I love that too. Yeah. Pause there because I think I want to double click into that right after we share a little kicker here. There's a really popular survey that comes out every year. Most marketers are really familiar with it. I think it's increasingly being covered by the like the mainstream media. It's called the Edelman Trust Barometer. And it's all about trust, right? It's all about, hey, how does the average citizen globally, it's not just US, pretty much every country, feel about and trust different institutions. And the institutions they typically cover are government, media, business leaders, and even non-governmental institutions, NGOs, or organizations. And so if you look at that, for the past three or four years, there's been this really obvious trend line where in the 2021 report, they called it the belief-driven employee. And it was all about the employee seeking to marry their worldview and mission idea of social good with their career and specifically their company. And you see starting 2021, just right after the pandemic, that reflect itself in the employee having higher levels of trust for the business and in many cases the CEO versus or relative to government and media. Since 2021, business, for the most part, has retained maybe slightly decreased levels of trust compared to government and media. No surprise there. The government far less trusted than business and both government and media seen as sources of misleading information. So that's one A, I think, really interesting because it tells the story of, hey, you know what? If I'm an employee, I do care about this notion of social good, what's evil, maybe to the point of me quitting, loud quitting even. <laughs> And then just the second point here is, and I kind of hit upon this when I talked about like the, these two novels, Liar's Poker and, and Tom Wolfe's Bonfire Vanities, but like the notion of evil industry changes, right? So in the 80s, it was totally finance. And those books really represented, those two books represented kind of the call against that industry and those companies. And now, at least as of a few years ago, tech is really the, the poster child for that. Tech used to be the rebellious counterculture progressive change agent. And now it's like the data hoarding privacy pirate pillaging our personal lives for gold, right? Yeah, obviously I scripted that line. It was like a tongue twister. That was a lot of P's. A lot of alliteration, right? Pillaging. <laughs> but so why don't we set the stage here? I'm curious, before we get into it, maybe just talk about a little what your perceptions are on like the fickle nature of this all, right? One side of me is super mission driven and like I totally resonated with your story, Aaron, partially because I just freaking hate those universities. Who doesn't hate Phoenix universities? The other part of me is kind of cynical. It's well... Every 10 years, every decade, half a decade or so, our idea of what's normal, what's acceptable changes. And I just gave the example of like finance vis-a-vis -vis tech now being the 
the poster child for evil. What's your take on that? I do have to admit that when I graduated from college, I took an advertising job working for a pharmaceutical, which, you know, pharma companies are widely considered evil. Where does the evil moniker come into play for Pfizer? I assume it's because of like health insurance costs and whatnot. Yeah. Is it, are we angry at the hospitals or the system itself or the right, pharma? Right. I mean, there's too much. I did get to go to the Pfizer offices, but I did a short project and they were really cool. And in the meetings, they had ice cream and popcorn. Well, but see, that's telling. Okay. So here's an example. <laughs> so, the version of yourself coming out of college, idealistic, optimistic, maybe counterculture degree, recognizing the fact there's just some level of greed and the business model happening here. And then it turns out, like, fast forward five years, it just took, like, a conference some ice cream, <laughs> you know, and you working for All them my to change your tune. <laughs> no, I had one hard line, which was I wouldn't work on tobacco. And then I was in an errand-like situation where I was desperately looking for a job, and I was at an agency, and they asked, would you be willing to work on tobacco? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And then I got home, and I was like, what? Where did that come from? That was something I said I would never do. And I didn't. I didn't end up taking a job working on tobacco. But it was interesting thing to learn about myself, how quickly my tone would change in an interview, even if it wasn't something that I followed through with. I was like, whoa, I don't know why I didn't say no. I think I was just like, I right. don't know. Is it a job? Aaron, is survival at play here? I mean, you took that for-profit university job, probably partially paid decently well. Looking back at it now, Matt, I think I had the luxury of being able to be a little bit more rebellious because I didn't have kids. I didn't have a kid or kids. Like I hear your kids in the background, Matt, right? We do a lot of episodes. Great. No, because you're a dad. And so we're recording at home. We're, we're in the lonely office. I knew at that time when I didn't have kids, I just had more latitude. I knew that, hey, this is wrong. And I felt like this is just me. And if I have to take the heat for this, or if I'm impoverished because of this, or if I have an eviction notice because of this, I'm willing to accept that. 2012, I was in a position to be able to loud quit. I think in 2023, if I was in that same position with the dependence and the responsibilities I have now, I would probably be more of a quiet quitter. I think there's a lot of people, and I feel like maybe Gen Z has a different perspective on this. But I know a lot of people in our sort of age range who have said they wouldn't work on something, and maybe it's advertising as well. So you're working for an agency and you get put on a project. Like I have a good friend who has put on a project with a big oil company, which is something that she said she would never do. And then she did it because at least it's somebody who cares about the environment working on this project as opposed to someone who doesn't care. It was a great add-on to her portfolio. Who, who knows? <laughs> so this is where I'm going is a lot of the idealism around this stuff, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, like, just the reality. A lot of the way I think the typical worker employee looks at this is initially from purely just a kind of conceptual, hypothetical point of view, and then inevitably or invariably they enter the workforce. They end up being put in a position where like, hey, do you want to work on this marketing campaign for this carbon emitting gas and oil client? And it's a different perspective at that point. You're put in that situation where you have to actually make a choice where it impacts your day-to-day. -day. And so I, I wanted to introduce here, because I think you have to talk about this topic if we're going to approach this idea of evil in industry and corporation anyway. ESG is a big moniker. It has a lot of baggage. So just a really brief primer, and then we could jump into this. So ESG is basically an approach to investing that prioritizes or recommends taking environmental issues, that's the E, social issues, that's the S, and governance issues, that's the G, 
into account when deciding which companies to invest in. It initially was coined in a United Nations report in 2005, and since then has really gone on to cover whole sorts of issues. I think the most politicized ones, if we just kind of call them out, because you know, if you look at some of the issues, governance includes cybersecurity. Who's against cybersecurity, right? Nobody is. Everybody wants to be safe from hackers. But the more politicized ones are really the ones that fall within E and S, right? So within the environmental policy is climate change. And that we know that's inherently politicized. And companies that advocate for climate change and go about business in a way that doesn't emit carbon are rewarded under this framework. That's one element. And then the other one within S, which is the social piece, diversity and equity inclusion is kind of the politicized one, which is namely companies that prioritize hiring in a diverse way across kind of gender lines and sexual lines and just minority lines. That's what ESG is. Just want to give a bit background. It's in the news, right? I, th I feel like the new idea of what's evil, which corporation's evil, which is not, is basically this ESG framework. And I'm not saying that with a point of view. I'm just saying like, that's the way it is. And, you know, we all have seen how it's played out recently, right? So Anheuser-Busch had a big kind of controversial promotion for one of their marketing ads. I don't know if you were on that campaign, <laughs> Leah. I was not, but I mean, it was all over TikTok and I'm all over TikTok. So I'm very, there you go. <laughs> very aware. So it was a controversial promotion of Dylan Mulvaney, yeah. a transgender TikTok influencer. And on the flip side, you have progressives looking at companies like ExxonMobil and Facebook and Wells Fargo and Walmart and all these companies, by the way, I just mentioned those four are like on the lowest ESG ratings. You can look it up. They'll have sub 50 ESG ratings. I guess my question is this, not that there's a bit of a framework that either intentionally or unintentionally has come about in defining what's to a degree good or not. Does this actually play a role for most of us in choosing a job? I think people are generally more concerned about what their peers feel. I've had multiple people, for instance, who work at Facebook that I'm friends with. When we start a conversation or they've decided to go to Facebook or whatever it is, will give me a rundown of why they made that decision. They'll like explain themselves before I even, I wasn't planning to say anything negative about it, but they feel like they need to explain their decision or justify their action in some way. I don't know if people are actively looking up the ESG scores. I think it's just a general vibe. They're not worried as much about their own culpability, rather how it appears that they are working for something that is looked at as a company that is on the wrong side. What are people looking for? I don't know, Matt. It's interesting. I think it comes from a different spectrum. Some people are asking, where is my line? Some people are just compartmentalizing and saying, you know what? This is just the world as it is. I don't really make a difference, meaning I'm just a cog in the machine. But ultimately, you got to ask yourself, are you doing more harm than good? I didn't really have the tools or at least was smart enough to go, what is the for-profit school? It took me being there to see what was going on. I don't think people were as aware. Yeah, it was more of an experiential thing. It took a while for the scam that Phoenix University's turned out to be. It did take a while to kind of surface, I guess. Right. Maybe because it was initiated itself in a pre-social media era. I almost feel like a Phoenix University business model launched nowadays. It'd be called out within a week and on Twitter and maybe it closed down. The one job that I took, which was I moved agencies to work on this amazing environmental nonprofit that I was really excited okay. about. And it was a really difficult, unpleasant job. <laughs> Mm. Am I really making a difference with this work that I'm doing? Was this move worthwhile? Was the benefit cuts 
that I ended up taking was all of this worthwhile. I went and worked on something that I was really excited about, and then it just sucked. So in your story, what you really cared about was internally, how does this company treat its employees? What's the work-life balance like? Do they offer childcare? I'm thinking, I'm looking at here at these ESG scores for some of the lower rated companies, right? So Wells Fargo has a really low one. Amongst the reasons why is because according to the analytics firm that dishes out these ratings, it's been involved in a number of scandals, including fake accounts, scandals, and discriminatory lending practices. But I'd imagine if you're an employee and you find out that Wells Fargo has really generous childcare policies and your manager is super understanding on you taking off certain weekdays and all this other kind of day-to-day internal stuff, it's not that you don't care about the external, it's that like that's your prism, right? And then the other thing is it's it's really hard to be monolithically correct on any of this stuff anymore. Like we just said the example of Anheuser-Busch, where clearly there's a conservative part of society that were not a fan of that type of promotional strategy. And then there was a another part, more liberal progressive part of society that was. And as a worker, you might fall under either camp. I do think there are pillars or tenets that deserve more priority. So in this example, that's an advertising tactic, right? That's just saying, hey, we're going to try to speak to a demographic or we're going to try to incorporate a different voice or viewpoint. That's different than the product being inherently bad or harmful for the story. I was a cog in the wheel. But what I recognized, it wasn't so much the marketing. It wasn't the packaging. It wasn't the viewpoint of higher education itself or even student debt. What it was, was that the premise of this thing and what they said they were going to do ended up doing at times the opposite. It was a fraud. I think some of these for-profit universities have since either settled or been taken to court on outright fraud. I don't think we can say that the same with like Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's the same model. Right. I think the anti-consensus or like this multiple viewpoints on some of these issues emerges less around fraud in the case of for-profit universities or pedophilia that Facebook or Twitter either unintentionally are kind of promoting. I think everybody, for the most part, most civilized society says like, this is wrong. We can agree. I think it comes to some of these other social issues that are embedded, for example, within frameworks like ESG. There are folks who disagree with this. My belief is where a lot of workers are netting out on some of this stuff. It's like, hey, we are going to agree to disagree. What you're saying is on the continuum or on the spectrum, I'm on one side, which is basically a clear fraud. Like eventually it took a while to find out, but we could all pretty much agree, right? With a consensus that you worked for a fraudulent company and we can all kind of, there isn't really room to debate about that. I think we talked about a previous show, like the the World of Warcraft digital miners, right? You you might find this interesting, that story, but- (laughs) Leia's face when you said that was what put it. She's like, okay, you are a gamer, aren't you? Like, I, knew it. I see that gamer chair behind you. <laughs> I produced a story while I was MTV about World of Warcraft digital gold miners. And these were basically kids, teens, who were housed 20, 30 at a time in very small rooms on computers, clicking on their mouses at the time and mining digital gold that would then be sold on you know marketplaces like I think it was IGN was one of them. And the story wasn't directly about like exploitation. And the reason it wasn't because those same digital gold miners were making the point like, look, I know this is really tedious work. I'm going to have like arthritic pain from my wrist when I'm in my twenties because I'm doing this stuff, but like I'm getting five X the wage I would normally get. Right. And so 
I think whether you're talking about digital gold from World of Warcraft, you're talking about bigger supply chains, Foxconn for iPhones or whatever it is. I think this stuff gets nuanced and complicated only because on the other side of some of these issues, some of these folks might like, hey, you know, the pay is pretty well. And and so it's it's really hard to coalesce, for example, around, okay, this is an evil enterprise. I think, again, Phoenix University and it's ilk, we can all coalesce around. But other than that, it's kind of hard for society to do it. I do think the younger generation keeps social good in mind maybe more yep. than we did when yep. they're searching for a job. People are hypocritical, though. They won't go eat at Chick-fil-A, but we're going to ignore Sheehan's really shitty human rights policies. We all pick and choose our battles. Even as human beings, we don't have the capacity. We're not like ChatGPT where we could just go, oh, let me actually scan every single possible job to see. You kind of go at these things with a general template and kind of hope that where we're going and where we're working has our best interest in mind and has the customer's best interest in mind. That's sort of a, a blind promise that we make to ourselves as well as our potential employer. But I do have a theory to your point, Lee. I think you're right. I think the younger generation keep us honest. A lot of people would say, oh, that's just naive. You know, maybe Aaron was naive in 2012 as he was doing his monologue and saying this is wrong. But I don't think that's the case. I actually think that disruption that happens from being a young person into the working world actually comes from being subsidized. Meaning as a kid, generally, you have parents, one parent, grandma, yeah. whoever. You have a subsidized existence and you have time. And with that subsidy in time, for me... It allows you to have the viewpoint to look at the world as it should be because you're not being pulled on by these other things. It's a safety I, I gotta net. pay my bills. Yeah. It's a safety net. And some would argue that that safety net is an illusion. I would actually say that that safety net actually gives you a clearer viewpoint of what the world should be. We've talked about universal basic income. It's not, you know, philosophically just there to supply people with money just so they can be like flatlined and intravenously fed with fast food and watching Geraldo reruns. What it <laughs> Geraldo, is, Geraldo. What, there it is. It gets you to a point yeah. where you can, where you're more like a child or more like a kid who goes, wait a second, I don't need this job. My basic needs are taken care of. And it's interesting to think about if you're that worker right now listening asking yourself the same questions that I did, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and you're in a place where you're going, should I be here? I mean, ask yourself, one, what is your financial situation? If you have the latitude to be able to leave, then you probably should have the courage to leave. If you don't have the latitude to leave, then you have to make the best choice available for you and your family. It's not a coincidence when you look at social media, the protagonists in history who made the most out of social media are also coincidentally the ones who, after the fact, come out and advocate against social media and what kind of harm. It's like, yeah. you know, you did very well. Colleagues, kind of somewhat distant colleagues within the larger tech space who've since become investors. And one of them recently kind of really publicly went on LinkedIn is like, you know what? I have a new investment thesis. My investment thesis is invest only in vices. And he literally is like, here are the seven deadly sin. And like, if you have a, a business, that, Carol, hit me up. It's not that he's an individual who I think doesn't have a moral framework. He more represents an individual who's, resigned and acquiesced of sorts to like, hey, there's so much nuance on these different topics of what's socially good and what's not. I probably, he's probably thinking this about himself. I can't do much myself to change things. So therefore, let me share in the wealth that's generated out of it. And I think the same story repeats itself for every enterprise. I mean, like there's a lot of very wealthy capitalists who will be the first to admit that 
this debt binge that the country's on isn't good financially for the country. I mean, that's somewhat obvious, but at the same time, they'll still won't bet against the markets because they're like, oh, that's going to play out in 20 years, right? Within the next five, 10 years, you know, we could probably still absorb another 100% of debt to GDP and we'll be fine. I think there's a lot of acquiescence that happens, a lot of resignation that happens. And when you're younger, there's less of opportunity cost and you have less to lose. And I, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I'm not saying, hey, if you're Gen Z, you become cynical like the rest of us. No, by all means, use your point in time and status to try to challenge things, particularly if you have less to lose and may, maybe more to gain. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning in to The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. And make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.